This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 294th episode, we have a bunch of news, including an amazing new mid-Triassic dinosaur slash pterosaur, which has all sorts of cool implications. Yeah, just the dinosaur slash pterosaur part. <laughs> yeah, it's super awesome. We also have Dinosaur of the Day Alberta Ceratops and an especially long fun fact, which goes into some of the details about this dinosaur pterosaur situation. But it would have made that news item just crazy long. So I split it up. It was quite the Erictodromius burrow. Yes. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. This week, we have three new patrons, Blue Golemer, Richard, and Anne. Thank you all so much for joining. And we also have our random drawing winners that we're going to thank this week. And they are Stego Sophie, Wurgersource, Kessler, Vikram and Karthik, Daniel McGill, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, and Scotty. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody. We really appreciate all that you do and all your support and being able to interact with you on our Discord. It's been amazing. And if you're not currently getting a shout out, but you're at the Ankylosaurus level or above, then please let us know what shout out you would like us to give you. We don't do them by default for the Triceratops and up levels since they're edited out of the ad free version. But if you're listening to this version and you're at those levels and you want a shout out, just let us know. And if you're not at those levels yet and you want a shout out, then you can join our Patreon, patreon.com slash Inodino. Jumping into the news, as promised, we have a new animal that helps explain some of what the first dinosaurs and maybe pterosaurs looked like. This one was published in PNAS by Christian Camerera and others. And the new animal is named Kanganophon keeley. There's no pronunciation guide, and I don't speak Malagasy, so I may have gotten that wrong. But Kanganophon comes from Kangana, which is Malagasy for bug, and Phan, which is Greek for slayer, which makes it the tiny bug slayer. <laughs> it's kind of a fun name. And Keeley is Malagasy for small, so it's the small tiny bug slayer, in case you couldn't figure out that something that was slaying bugs was probably small. <laughs> and it was very small. They estimate it was only about 10 centimeters or about four inches tall. Oh yeah, fits in your hand. Yeah, it is tiny. So being this weird pterosaur dinosaur, if you're familiar with early dinosaur evolution, means that it's an early ornithodiron, and ornithodira is a group that includes dinosaurs and pterosaurs. I'm going to go a lot more into that in our fun fact, but suffice it to say that pterosaurs and dinosaurs are very closely related, and so there was a split and there were some weird in-between dinosaurs. This one was from the mid to upper Triassic. Really roughly, it's about 230 to 240 million years ago, but it was found in southwest Madagascar, 
and we don't have any good radiometric dating from that area. So it, it's a pretty rough estimate at this time. So we really do need to get a better estimate because it's really important because we're, we're talking about the evolution of these animals and a few million years makes a pretty big difference in that range. Especially because if it's at the earlier end of the range, it could be before dinosaurs and pterosaurs split off. And if it's at the end of the range, then it's probably in one of the two groups, or it could be a side shoot. But of Kanganophon, what they found was the right maxilla, which is kind of the snout. So they got a little bit of the skull, which is nice. Mm -hmm. It also has some teeth in it, which is really helpful. They found most of the femur, part of the humerus, pieces of the tibia and fibula, a few foot bones, a toe bone, a tail vertebra, and some quote-unquote indeterminate skeletal fragments. So for a Triassic find, it's pretty decent. It's obviously not a full articulated skeleton. I think the only thing that was articulated was part of the foot and a toe bone. <laughs> so not a whole lot of information from the articulation. But the fact that they got most of the femur is really helpful for figuring out its sort of limb proportions and how much it weighed and stuff like that. The femur is only about 38 millimeters or 1.5 inches long. It's like a finger bone in no. our hand. <laughs> and it's only 2.9 millimeters in diameter, which makes our finger bones seem massive. Pictures of it online, like Sabrina hinted at, basically show it standing in the palm of a hand is about the size it is. But it has really lanky legs. So even though it looks like maybe it could stand in the palm of a hand, its legs are like four inches long. So it would be awkward. Yeah, and it might have difficulty balancing. Wait, so it's, it's mostly because the height is four inches. Yeah, so I mean with dinosaurs, the legs go pretty much the full height of the animal because they insert at the hips, which is even with the spine. Mm. So it's, you know, maybe it's three and a half inch long leg. But yeah, it's mostly legs for sure. And it has these little tiny arms by comparison to its legs. So it wouldn't balance well in your hand? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> In addition to that femur, it has really long lower leg and foot bones. So that helped get it those long leg proportions. For comparison, Scleromachlis is the only Triassic relative that's smaller. Its femur is about 15% shorter. So even though it's smaller, it's only a little bit smaller. So this is by far one of the smallest dinosaurs or dinosaur morphs or ornithodirons, <laughs> depending on where you classify it in the Triassic. Since we got lucky and found that maxilla with teeth in it, we can see quite a bit of detail about its potential diet. It has conical teeth, which are a little bit more like pterosaur teeth when you think about it than like a typical dinosaur tooth. And they have, quote, pitted microware consistent with a diet of hard-shelled insects, end quote. So it looks like it was using these conical teeth as kind of spears to grab into hard-shelled insects, and then the, those hard shells were wearing down the teeth and it was probably eating those insects because it's so small that it didn't have a lot of other choices in its diet, I'm guessing. The paleo art of Kanganophon is really funny because I found two depictions of it, and they're like complete opposites in terms of cuteness. <laughs> they're both really fuzzy, which is purely speculation, although an informed speculation. But the pictures are really interesting because there's the one of it standing in a hand. It looks like a creepy like tails from the crypt sort of creature. It's got like bug eyes. Its head has got like dramatic features. You can see its weird conical teeth. And then its fuzz is really scraggly down its back and it's kind of the sickly green color. Mm. The other picture of it 
It looks like the cutest little, almost like a hamster. It's just a nice red. It's all fuzzy with even hair all over it. It's got its mouth closed so you don't see its creepy teeth. And it, it looks like a puffy, nice little thing you want to pet. Well, plus it's crouching so you don't see its weirdly long legs. That's true, yeah. So between the two, it was either really creepy looking or really cute, probably somewhere in between. But then again, we didn't find most of the skull or... We only have the one vertebra from the tail, so we really don't know that much about its overall body proportions. And again, we didn't find any fossilized skin impressions, so we don't know if it had fuzz for sure or not. One of the important things about finding Kanganophon is that it was found in Africa, and most other Triassic dinosaur morphs are from South America. There have been a few from Europe and North America and other places, but Africa is pretty lacking in early dinosaur morphs. And back in the Triassic, the continents were all still in Pangaea, so we would expect to see pretty good global distributions of most animals. So it's nice to see some examples from Madagascar. And in that area, they've also found cynodonts and rhynchosaurs, which are two other groups that are weirdos that were only around in the Triassic. <laughs> you might be familiar with them because there was, I think, a dicynodont in Walking with Dinosaurs in the first episode, right? Those mammalian type ones they depicted them as. Phylogenetically speaking, Kanganophon is in Lagerpetidae, and it's unclear exactly whether Lagerpetidae belongs in the pterosaur morph or dinosaur morph group. It's also possible that it isn't in either of them, and it's kind of a diverging group that doesn't, sort of like Herrerasaurus, where it's just really hard to define because it's got a lot of these early characteristics that don't fit nicely into either group. And other than its unusually lanky legs, Kanganophon is similar to other lagerpedids, and it holds a couple of records being the smallest known lagerpedid and the first lagerpedid known from Africa. If you're not familiar with the group Lagerpedidae, because we almost never talk about it because it's not even necessarily a dinosaur. <laughs> In fact, it's almost certainly not a dinosaur. It would be a dinosaur morph, which is sort of like sauropodomorphs that aren't true sauropods, but they're on the way to being sauropods. Dinosaur morphs are the same kind of thing where most of the early dinosaur morphs aren't true dinosaurs. They're just about to be dinosaurs based on our classification. And based on this paleo art, it looks dinosaur-ish. Yeah, for sure. And early pterosaur morphs and dinosaur morphs had a lot of the characteristics that you look for, like the way their leg proportions, and their skull shape and things. They look pretty dinosaur-y. But the thing that makes lagerpedids lagerpedids <laughs> is essentially that they're small and they have really short femurs or femora. But even though they have a short femur, that makes them similar to pterosaurs. But the other leg bones in pterosaurs are also short, whereas in lagerpedids, they have longer lower leg bones. So overall, their legs are pretty long. And then, of course, lagerpedids have really short arms compared to pterosaur morphs, which are getting these really big arms so that eventually they can start flying. Luckily, the authors of the paper did some histology on Kanganophon, and they picked the tibia. In it, they found two legs, which means that the dinosaur was at least two years old. The bone was also parallel fibered, which means that it wasn't growing much anymore. So even though it was tiny, it almost certainly wasn't a juvenile. This is basically near its adult size. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Animals were smaller back then. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times 
the depictions of early dinosaurs have them pretty big, like maybe dog-sized or so. But one of the implications of this research is that the first dinosaurs, or at least the ornithodirons, may have been very small, and it might mean that early dinosaurs were super small, like this guy was. That also could explain why we've found so few early dinosaur morphs and pterosaur morphs. If they're so small, they'd be a lot less likely to fossilize, and they're also a lot harder to find the fossils when you're out in the field. Yeah, you have to get really lucky. Yes. They also did a little bit of speculation saying that maybe their small size helped pterosaurs eventually start flying. Hmm. And part of the reason they put fuzz on Kanganophon in the paleo art is because they think that small animals need more insulation to keep their bodies at a constant temperature, and therefore it probably was fuzzy. And they're also leading that to the conclusion that maybe these small sizes of dinosaur morphs and pterosaur morphs led to them both evolving fuzzy structures, because we know that some pterosaurs at least were fuzzy. But I was surprised that they didn't mention that that could have been before the split. They kind of implied that it was after the split, like dinosaurs and pterosaurs separately evolved fuzz. But it seems like if we're arguing that 230, 240 million years ago, this ornithodiron that may or may not be before the split had fuzz, it could be a good way to show that they got fuzz from the same common ancestor. Mm -hmm. I wonder if dino fuzz is one of those things that evolved multiple times. Yeah, it definitely could be. And we know that it, it evolved, at least once there was fuzz, it started branching into all sorts of different weird feathers and non-feathers and downy fluff and different versions of feathers. So yeah, it's definitely possible that it could have evolved more than once. Speaking of dino fuzz, somewhat related, there's a really lovely short video of two penguins from Chicago Shed Museum, Izzy and Darwin, who visited their dinosaur relatives at Chicago Field Museum. And the video shows them walking around and looking at the T-Rex. And I think they kind of run away after they look at the T-Rex, but I don't think they're actually scared of the T-Rex skeleton. I guess penguins do have dino fuzz in a way. They do when they're chicks. And when they're adults too, they have feathers. They're just like a weird feather that covers their body. That's what gives them the coloration. Mm -hmm. The sounds of them walking around the museum is my new favorite thing. The, the sound of webbed feet walking on hard surfaces is fantastic. And I need to figure out how to get it as a ringtone because <laughs> it makes me so happy. <laughs> Especially when they're hurrying to catch up. Yeah. In other news, in Liverpool in the UK, there's going to be live concerts in a drive-in setting, including one called Dinosaur World Live. And in that show, you'll see T-Rex, Triceratops, Giraffatitan, Microraptor, and Cygnosaurus. And the show runs August 6th and 7th. So if you're in the area and you feel like going to a, like a drive-in type of concert, let us know how it is. Yeah, I've, I've heard that there's been a lot of these drive-in performances and movies and stuff since all the theaters are closed for the most part. Mm-hmm. Why not throw some dinosaurs in the mix? Yeah, you can't go wrong. In Tucson, Arizona, there's an iconic T-Rex statue, which, Garrett, I think we saw it when we were there for the gem show. It's at the intersection of Grant and Tanque Verde, and right now it has a face mask. So apparently this T-Rex has been there since 1994 in front of a McDonald's. And there used to be a Myasaura, and both the Myasaura and T-Rex were used in Jurassic Park. And the owners of this particular McDonald's loved dinosaurs, and they had a connection at Universal Pictures, which is how they got them. Hmm. 
So the 40-foot-long T-Rex is still around because of a government mandate. And I guess when McDonald's reconstructed, they got city approval as long as the T-Rex stayed up front. (laughs) You don't want to diminish the character of the neighborhood by getting rid of dinosaurs. Yeah. (laughs) Although they did get rid of the Myasaur, but still. In Orlando, Florida, there's a man named John Hammond, who I think that is his real name is selling his life-size T-Rex head for over $2,000. And Hammond said that he bought the fiberglass in the mid-2000s. He wanted to add it to his shop, Rocks and Bones. And it turns out he wasn't allowed to hang the T-Rex head on his shop, city regulations, so he mounted it to his Jeep. Oh, jeez. And now the T-Rex is up for sale and needs a coat of paint. And since we keep talking about T-Rex, we got a quick update on Jurassic World Dominion and Chris Pratt's all-in challenge. They raised over $59 million to help feed the hungry. Holy cow, that's a lot of money. Yeah, I think it was the whole all-in challenge, not just Chris Pratt's part. That makes more sense. It's like, that's a lot of people that want to get into Jurassic World Dominion and get eaten by a dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) That would be amazing. So Pratt announced the name of the fan who took part and will be the one getting eaten. And the fan's name is Terry. That's all we know. We'll be looking out for Terry (laughs) a year from now. One of the people that gets eaten. I'm sure there'll be more than one. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Albertoceratops, which was a request from Michael via our Discord and Patreon. So thanks. Albertoceratops was a centrosaurine ceratopsian that lived in the late Cretaceous and what is now Alberta, Canada, in the Oldman Formation. 
And it's estimated to be about 19 feet, 5.8 meters long, and weigh 7,700 pounds or 3,500 kilograms. It was an herbivore and a basal centrosaurian. And in Ceratopsia, there's two main groups. There's the centrosaurians and the chasmosaurs. Yeah, the centrosaurians usually have one big horn in the middle. It's easy to remember because it's got centro, so it's got that central big horn, kind of like on the nose like a rhino, and they tend to have fancier frills. So Styracosaurus is a centrosaurian. It's got the big nose horn and then a big fancy frill with all these little hornlet type things around the edge. And then Chasmosaurians are the other group. The most famous one is Triceratops. They usually have two big brow horns right above the eyes and then a little tiny one on the nose if anything is really there and a less decorated frill. Yes. So Albertoceratops is an interesting one because it is a centrosaurine, but unlike other centrosaurines, it had two long brow horns like a chasmosaur. That's very weird. Mm-hmm. It had no nasal horn. Instead, it had a bony ridge or a bump on the top of its snout, and it had two holes in the frill, and the frill had two small horns that curved out to the sides. So pretty ornamental looking. The horns on the frill may have been for self-defense against something like Displetosaurus or for display. Or both. A complete skull was found in August 2001, and then Albertoceratops was named in 2007 by Michael Ryan. The type species is Albertoceratops nesmoi, and the genus name means Alberta horned face. The species name is in honor of Cecil Nesmo, a local rancher who has supported paleontology in the area. More specimens that were thought to be Albertoceratops were found in Montana in the Judith River Formation, but then later found to be a new centrosaurine Medusaceratops. That's a good name. Yeah, so Michael Ryan and others found in 2010 that the Judith River Formation fossils were Medusaceratops, and they found that Medusaceratops and Albertoceratops are close relatives, but there's some differences in the skull. And the biggest one is that while Albertoceratops have one pair of hooks coming out of the side of its frill, Medusaceratops had two. David Evans and Michael Ryan started a Southern Alberta Dinosaur Research Group in 2005, along with colleagues from the Royal Tyrrell University of Alberta and University of Calgary, because Southern Alberta has potentially many dinosaurs, but it's a pretty remote area. And the support of local ranchers in the area is pretty key for finding dinosaurs and doing research. So the group, SADRG, Southern Alberta Dinosaur Research Group, helps researchers, government agencies, and local residents work together. Nice. And for our fun fact today, I'm starting out with a quiz for Sabrina. So which of these do you think are the closest relatives to dinosaurs? I'm going to give you five. Okay. And you got to rank them from closest relative to farthest relative. Oh, no. You can use a pen and paper if you want. Okay, I'm ready. So we've got Dimetrodon, Pterodactylus, Megalodon, Mosasaurus, and Plesiosaurus. Oh boy. Okay, I'm going to rank Dimetrodon as furthest away because I know that we mammals are more closely related to Dimetrodon than dinosaurs. So that's going at the bottom. But then I have no idea about these others. (laughs) All right, I'm... Going to guess that Megalodon, Mosasaurus, and Plesiosaurus are all relatively close somewhere in the middle, only because we've only talked about one swimming semi-aquatic dinosaur, and that's Spinosaurus. So I'm going to say Pterodactylus would be at the top. The closest? Yes, the closest. Well, you're right about Pterodactyl. Us. Oh no, I'm not right about Dimetrodon. No. Oh. So (laughs) I'll get into it (laughs) and explain. So real quick, though, I have to 
do this because I needed to learn it to understand it. So I, I feel like it helps for the understanding. I'm just going to go through a very brief history of where phylogenetics comes from. Okay. So animal groups over time have been defined through Linnaean taxonomy, cladistics, and then finally phylogenetics. The Linnaean system is from the 1700s. It's that whole King Philip came over to have good spaghetti or whatever the acronym is, kingdom, phylum, order, family, oh, genus, species. I've never heard that acronym before. <laughs> yeah. What does spaghetti have to do with phylogenetics? Okay. Yeah. So that's the Linnaean system. You have these names at all these different levels, and it's a very hierarchical way of thinking. And it made a lot of sense. It's where a lot of names came from for how we identify animals but it's considered pretty outdated. So we don't even use kingdoms anymore. Now we talk about domains and all of animalia is in one, then there's bacteria and archaea. Anyway, it was created in the 1700s and the groups are defined based on unique versus shared characteristics. So there was a group called ungulates, for example, which is like everything with hooves, they must all be really closely related. And then it turns out later on, we figured out, well, different animals can evolve hooves just because they have hooves. They're not all in the same group. This is obviously before the theory of evolution. So it made a lot of sense. And it's still used for genus and species levels within dinosaurs. For example, Tyrannosaurus and Rex. Tyrannosaurus is the genus name. Rex is the species name. That's a Linnaean classification. Jumping forward into the 1900s and late 1800s, we got cladistics. This came after the rise of evolutionary theory, and it shows the family tree of life. For example, there's Theropoda, also known as beast feet, <laughs> which was named by Marsh in 1881. And one way to define this theropod beast foot animals is that they're bipedal, they have hollow bones, and they have three toes. So it's another way of looking for a classification, but we're trying to look for these evolutionary lines. We're not just saying everything that has hooves is in the same category. Finally, we got to phylogenetics. Phylo comes from the Greek for group. Genetic comes from genesis or origin. So it basically means the origin of the group. And this got really popular in the 1990s because we can use DNA to test for a common ancestor. So now we're really getting into the true groups, how things actually evolved, because you can look at the DNA and see how closely related things are. One of the popular ways to name a group in phylogenetics is by the extremes that are included. So for example, with Neotheropoda, it's defined as the group that includes the most common ancestor of Coelophysis and modern birds. So those new beast feed animals. Yes. <laughs> and when you have these distant relatives, you can imagine you have to like go back up the family tree to some point in history, which is their most recent common ancestor. It's both of their great, 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 great times a million grandpas. You get that most recent common ancestor. And then every other animal that has that same common ancestor is included. So if you lump in Coelophysis from about 200 million years ago and modern birds from today, you get every bird that's ever existed, as well as most of the theropods like T-Rex and lots of others. So there we go. There's, there's the brief background. We usually just talk about phylogenetics. We don't usually use the word cladistics. It's a little bit confusing because they look exactly the same. If you look at a chart of cladistics versus phylogenetics, it's just the underlying assumptions. They both use cladograms, that same tree of life. But with cladistics, technically you're looking for shared traits, whereas phylogenetics, you're kind of working backwards from genetic information. However, 
there's a kind of an asterisk with the working from genetic information because we can't get DNA from dinosaurs <laughs> and we still do phylogenetics. So we just kind of do the best we can trying to figure out how they're related, not by shared traits, but by evolutionary pathways, which is really difficult. So sometimes it seems like there's a little bit of a blurry line between phylogenetics and cladistics and paleontology. However, we can use phylogenetics a little bit with dinosaurs because we can use modern animals. So we can use crocodilians and birds to estimate when groups split, or we can use different branches of birds to see like, well, did this group of birds evolve before the Cretaceous mass extinction? You can try to date it back using phylogenetics. And I should also mention that the name Dinosauria was originally with Linnaean taxonomy, and it was originally the group Megalosaurus, Iguanodon, and Hylaeosaurus, but it wasn't defined. If you used those three animals, it would be almost like doing phylogenetics because it would be like it's the shared common ancestor of these three. But Richard Owen didn't do phylogenetics and say these three's common ancestor because that's not what anybody did at the time. He came up with Linnaean terms and characteristics of them. So he said, well, they have this unique hip and they're really big. <laughs> and that's how we're going to define a dinosaur, which is how most people think about dinosaurs, right? Like mammoths, they're really big. Sure, it's a dinosaur <laughs> and it's extinct. I, I guess that would be the, the terms that most people think of. They'd say extinct and really big makes it a dinosaur. But obviously, that's not the modern scientific way to look at it. In phylogenetics, the definition of dinosauria has been repurposed to try to include the same essential group as this old term used. Now it's defined as the most recent common ancestor of triceratops and modern birds. Hmm. Everyone likes to use modern birds in there probably because we have their actual DNA. Mm -hmm. But triceratops, not in theropoda, it's over in ornithischia. So we assume that if you get that common ancestor between a theropod and an ornithischian, then you'll go all the way back up to the beginning of the dinosaur family tree. Of course, if you're into ornithoscolida, this would exclude sauropods. <laughs> but when Barron redefined dinosauria to include ornithoscolida, what he did was he said dinosauria is now the most recent common ancestor of triceratops, modern birds, and Diplodocus. Hmm. So you just threw in sauropods and now we're not going to leave them out. So no matter what, they get included. But it kind of shows how arbitrary these groups are because the original definition of it was it's got this hip structure and a large size and everybody sort of started working on dinosaurs in their research and we all kind of got this idea about what dinosaurs were. And then Later on, when we get to phylogenetics, we had to come up with a new definition that sort of included that same group. <laughs> right, because there's also a lot of small ones. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so it is very arbitrary what these groups are. And you could include, like you could say, it also includes pterosaurs, and then those become dinosaurs because it's just a word. But now that I've covered all that, I'm going to answer the question of which ones are the closest ancestors because people wonder about this all the time. So in modern phylogenetic terms, this is about how close common ancestors are to dinosauria. All of dinosauria has the most recent common ancestor of about 240 million years ago. And that's still a rough approximation. Some people say it's as recent as 233. Other people say well into the 240s, but about 240, I think is right. Ornithodira, that group that includes pterosaurs as well as dinosauria, pushes the most recent common ancestor only back about 5 million years to 245 million years ago. So that shows just how close pterosaurs are in relation to dinosaurs. 
I should note that true pterosaurs didn't show up until around the same time as dinosaurs, a little bit later. So really when Ornithodira split, it was Dinosauromorpha and Pterosauromorpha because there weren't true pterosaurs or dinosaurs at the time. Hmm. If you go back another 5 million years, 250 million years ago, you get Archosauria. That was named by Cope in 1869. We mentioned Marsh earlier, so I felt like we should give Cope some credit too. <laughs> Archosauria also includes crocodilians and pseudosuchians. So again, that's why we include crocodilians in a lot of our analysis of dinosaurs, because they're not quite a descendant of dinosaurs, but they're pretty close in terms of common ancestors, and we don't have any pterosaurs to work with. If you go back to 265 million years ago, you get to the most recent common ancestor of all saurians, and this is in the Permian. Saurians throw in, in addition to Archosauria, the Lepidosaurs, which is the sister taxa of Archosauria, and that includes Mosasaurs, snakes, and lizards. So that on my list there, after pterosaurs, the next closest was actually Mosasaurs. Hmm. Interesting. It's weird. It's also really weird that Mosasaurs are close relatives of snakes. But they are. You have to go back to 310 million years ago in the Carboniferous to get the most recent common ancestor of all Sauropsida. And at that point, you include all plesiosaurs, ichthyosaurs, and pretty much all quote unquote reptiles. So plesiosaurus is the next most common. Around the same time, but a little bit earlier, is when amniotes evolved about 310 to 340 million years ago. And that includes synapsids, which is the sister taxa of sauropsida. At that point, you're including dimetrodon and all mammals, including us. So we're our most recent common ancestor with dinosaurs is 310 million years ago. I guess I, should, I shouldn't have been grouping based on animals that live in the water. Yeah. So that's not really how things are classified. Exactly, yeah. Especially because we're all fish. It's weird because fish is a paraphyletic group. It doesn't include the descendants. Mm -hmm. And really, we're fish. All you have to do is look at a picture of a fetus and you'll see it looks just like a fish. <laughs> Pretty fishy in our early stages. But that leads me to Nathostomata, which is 460 million years ago for the most recent common ancestor, which is way back in the Ordovician, even before the Permian and the Carboniferous and the Devonian, way back <laughs> in history. Nathostomata means the jawed vertebrates, and you have to go back that far to get megalodon because megalodon is an even more distant relative to dinosaurs than normal fish because it's a shark, and sharks have these weird cartilage skeletons that split off, like I said, way back 460 million years ago. So megalodon is by far the most distant relative to dinosaurs of the group. So what I'm hearing is sharks are the weirdest. They're super weird, yeah. And before, I mean, if you go before 460 million years ago and you get back into the Cambrian, you start to get really weird stuff like things without jaws, things that don't even have skeletons, they just have notochords, all sorts of weird stuff. It's not even that far before Nathostomata. So to summarize, we got Pterodactylus, most recent common ancestor, only about 5 million years before the first dinosaurs. Which also makes sense because the archosaur you talked about today said it was like a dinosaur and like a pterosaur. Yep. Yeah, I'm glad you got that right. I was listening. Thank you. <laughs> the next most common is Mosasaurus, with the most recent common ancestor about 25 million years before dinosaurs. Then you've got 
a tie between Plesiosaurus and Ichthyosaurus, most recent common ancestor about 70 million years before dinosaurs, followed by Dimetrodon and us, <laughs> most recent common ancestor also about 70 million years before dinosaurs, but definitely before Plesiosaurus and Ichthyosaurus because it's in that separate synapsid group. And then finally, Megalodon, which has the most recent common ancestor of about 220 million years before the first dinosaurs because they got that weird cartilage skeleton that's way off in the boonies. I got one out of five. They got two. I didn't rank Mosasaurus, Plesiosaurus, and Megalodon in order, but... Oh, true. They were all just kind of in the middle Yeah. me. But sure, if in that case, we can say I got three. <laughs> sure, I'll give it to you. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app. And also, join our community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.